You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure as always. We're returning to the Aeneid, our, our very deep dive into the Aeneid. Last time we spent an episode on book one, and today we're going to take up book two. But before we get into book two, Dr. Fleming, some of our listeners might be wondering, why is Dr. Fleming go in, going into book by book, almost some might say blow by blow detail, uh, into the Aeneid? Yes, they, they probably wouldn't say that for a uh, World Series game, but for mere literature, of course, uh, why waste all this time? <laughs> the, for the, first of all, the work itself, the Aeneid, uh, on its merits, that is, on technical grounds as a literary uh, construction, is uh, deserves this kind of attention because this kind of attention will teach us how to appreciate uh, the few other books of such merit and also teach us a little bit about how, how great literature is usually rooted in, in fine craftsmanship. Each, uh, each of the books of the Aeneid is a model of narrative construction, but also provides wonderful insights into human character and, I would say, into human destiny. We're not going to talk about the versification, although we might talk about it in some future episode, but it is exquisite and it influenced an entire uh, generation of Latin poetry. It's a little bit like the influence Cicero had for so long on Latin prose. You, you get tired of perfection. You know, you can't stand Haydn and Mozart forever, so you've got to move on to Beethoven and Berlioz, and that's a shame. But in the case of the, uh, the Romans, Roman, the Roman, Roman literature kept on coming back to the masterpieces of Cicero and Virgil. Second, it's one of a handful of classic works that have never ceased to influence our cultural traditions, uh, both first pagan and then Christian. Uh, it's always been there, even if um, you know, there were relatively few people who could read it. There was no generation, for example, in the Middle Ages when there weren't learned people, when there weren't, maybe not learned in a, in a technical sense, but who, there weren't people, priests in particular, who uh, hadn't would read uh, both Virgil and Cicero. They're the two really indispensable writers of the Latin West from from the time the work their works were written uh, through the Middle Ages, blossoming again in the Renaissance, and, and and have never ceased to appeal to the best people in our society. And thirdly, there's an opportunity here by studying these books with a little bit of attention to improve our own concentration, uh, our ability to read a book with appreciation. Not as literary critics do, which is to impose their own worldview, which is always changing and it's always up to date and always modern, but rather to appreciate what it really is. I don't know if you had any, uh, Stephen, you've had much um, uh, French in college. I know that you've been uh, 
learning and rapidly improving your spoken French. But did you ever have French literature and composition classes? I did not. One of the things they used to do, and I found it painful and stupid, it's called the explication du texte. And with an explication of text, what you would do is you take some passage of Racine or Corneille or whatever it was, and you'd have to do, you'd have to go through and write, you know, let's see, well, the imaginary pl place that it's set in is, the dramatic date is, the point of view of the author is. And sometimes go, you'd, you'd be asked to go word by word and explaining why this word rather than some other word. It's a very, what was used, it's a very rhetorical system and, and it's very sort French. of yeah, very French, very cut and dried, very, uh, very, does not encourage originality and creativity, but it does, you know, the French never, until, maybe, the, uh, never, never until about 1970 did somebody with a lycée degree, was he unable to write coherent French? And, you know, whereas it's, that's been very much hit or miss in the history of the English language, but the, but the French were on top of these things. And of course, the, this is a, a method that grows out of the Latin rhetorical tradition. And we're not going to do anything of that kind today, but a little bit of attention to this and that detail to see what a writer is doing. How does he, you know, peep into it, look over his shoulder? How is he achieving his effect? Not so much what he means. Uh, it, I, I, I've, I've never liked critics or literary analysts who tried to tell you what, what a poem meant because if the poem doesn't speak to you, then, then it doesn't matter what some third party says. So we're, uh, I remember, we're going to ignore. <laughs> I remember reading some account of Robert Frost uh, wandering into a lecture about one of his poems and just sitting in the back and afterwards remarking to somebody, oh, I didn't know that's what I meant. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I want to circle back to your point about, uh, people having their own, um, critics having their own insights or trying to impose their own worldviews. Those of us who are not as familiar with critical reception of the Aeneid, let's say in modern times, what, what are, what are some of the horrors that uh, it's been subjected to? Yeah, you know, uh, one of my first popular lectures, my popular, I mean, it was it was meant to be for a non-technical non audience, was on, um, it was a conference on liberalism and, no, on ideology and the classics. And so one person gave the, how the classics are taught in the Soviet Union, one was on East Berlin, one was on Nazi Germany. And uh, by the way, they all had nice things to say. I had the uh, one was under Mussolini, and I gave the one negative paper, which was uh, uh, the liberal tradition and classics. That is how people read. They either decided that certain writers like uh, Xenophon weren't worth reading because they're too obviously right wing, or they would turn writers upside down. Uh, like uh, Virgil and Sophocles and Socrates, and Socrates, not a writer, but Plato, Socrates, and make them mean the opposite of what they uh, say. I remember once a student of Alan Bloom, who was temporarily very famous in America, and the student said that, uh, well, you know, Plato is uh, defends, defends American-style democracy. And I said, surely Professor Bloom didn't say that. I mean, I know he's a Straussian. 
But a man would have to be a fool to say that this elitist aristocrat who despised the common people, that he would, that he meant anything like American democracy. And his answer was, well, he didn't, what he said was, it was the only way we could rescue Plato and make him usable. <laughs> now, can, now, of course, that gives you a whole key to the, the whole Straussian uh, project of mis deliberately misreading literature to make it useful to their own their own little plots. But imagine how you go through life just deliberately misunderstanding every book uh, that's ever been written because it has to conform to some other agenda. So this is the kind of thing that goes on. Um, in the 19th century, Romantics um, didn't like Virgil because, I'm not all of them, but it was the, the dominant view was that uh, Roman literature is a feeble and clumsy imitation of Greek literature, and that Vir there's nothing in Virgil that's not merely a boring repetition of something. Now, nothing could be farther from the truth, and at least some decent, responsible, sort of critical scholars have, have pointed out over and over and over, yes, Virgil expects you to have read your Homer and know it very well, and he can play off that, not just with names and incidents, but even this construction of a scene that uh, he expects you to appreciate the, that this, this backdrop, this level of reference and illusion, but really... His interests are quite different, and they've been shaped both by Roman history and especially by the uh, Hellenistic Alexandrian style of composition, which is very attentive to detail and far more attentive to human psychology and feeling than exists in Homer. So he learned a fair amount from reading Greek drama, especially, say, Euripides and, and Menander, but also from this highly polished uh, Alexandrian poetry that he grew up reading. Um, in post-war America, it became fashionable, post-war, I should say, uh, post-World War II, uh, when I was going to school, it was fashionable to treat Virgil either as a subversive critic of the Augustine regime or as a uh, as a toady and a propagandist so you could take the same passage for example depending on what your point of view is read it in a in a sarcastic tone of voice and that would show you that uh, Virgil was just uh, couldn't stand Augustus, couldn't stand Mycenaeus, and he hated all of Roman civilization, or he was just a sort of Dr. Goebbels uh, ranting out propaganda. I mean, this is, of course, childish. It's as if uh, Virgil were a writer of sentimental claptrap, like, uh, like uh, who is the... Um, or who, who is the famous writer of the early 20th century who wrote Horatio Alger? He said, or 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 even worse, Ernest Hemingway in an awful novel like For Whom the Bell Tolls, which uh, there should be public burnings of it just to promote literary taste. <laughs> so, you know, when I was growing up, Stephen, this is a, this is of course a, a lot sometime between the Punic Wars, but this was uh, Hemingway was regarded. And certainly Hemingway thought of himself as one of the greatest writers in the history of the human race. <laughs> and um, I say that his early works aren't, aren't his short stories and first novel aren't quite good and worth reading. But he all twice. And it was only the second time around I realized how really shoddy and feeble so much of it is. 
I, I think so. for, for us for us younglings, Dr. Fleming, we are sometimes burdened with the the reputation. And I remember you know being 17, 18, 19 and coming to Hemingway for the first time and I remember reading a farewell to arms and coming with the idea that this was supposed to be a great, great novel. And I just remember, I didn't think it was that great. And I had that emperor's new clothes moment where I was wondering, well, am yeah. I, am I just stupid? Do I not understand something? Um, of course, no, Hemingway, he, he started with a decent script manuscript and then he worked with, I think Max Perkins and rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it, make it more conventional novel. And finally he writes, um, either Edmund Wilson or, or Scott Fitzgerald, a letter saying, I have become the, one of the lowest things on earth, a professional writer, God help me because you know, he'd become a hack in other words. So, uh, and he knew it. And nothing, nothing, any good was written after that. The first, nobody thought they'd make any money out of it, so they let him just write the novel he had uh, published, the novel he'd written. After that, he had to, he had to live up to their their pop literature standards. As as you were recounting that Virgil has been both portrayed as a subversive critic of Augustus or as a propagandist, I'm thinking, well, we've heard the same things about Shakespeare. That he was, you know, subversively against the Elizabethan regime, or that he was a toady and serving, you know, serving uh, her every wish, and I, and I'm wondering, are we well served by modern literary criticism in the least, Doctor Fleming, or are we just grasping? No, I don't. I don't. In general, I don't think. Um, I don't think literary criticism is as it's been uh, practiced in the 20th century is a uh, that man or a grown woman's effort it it is the idea that great books need somebody to tell you what it means if it's if it's that obscure <laughs> why are we bothering to read it no there are with the book of Job, which uh, which I read every morning, and um, there are uh, there are all sorts of problems in reading ancient literature, or even down to Chaucer, or perhaps even Shakespeare. But really, um, the idea that the 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 critic is some as a hermeneut, he's like a scriptural interpreter teasing out hidden meaning uh, that the writer probably wasn't aware of. Uh, all of this is. Uh, you know, it's, um, well, it's embarrassing. Grown-up people have better things to do with their time. And it has distorted literature. I think one of the reasons people don't read good books anymore is that critics have persuaded them that reading a novel, much less a poem or play, is some kind of arcane activity that requires specialized uh, technique technical information, so that reading a novel is like reading a chemical journal or a, or a, or a treatise on physics. And it's really, uh, people have, so people have been taught to be very skeptical, especially about poetry. Uh, nobody reads, in, in, uh, even when I was uh, in my teens, people, normal people still read poetry. Now normal people would be caught dead. <laughs> Well, in, in book two, the, the fall of Troy is discussed, Dr. Fleming. Uh, that's mentioned in Homer as well, correct? Yeah, there are uh, any number of versions 
of uh, in uh, in uh, of the fall of Troy. There, uh, of course, in the Odyssey, there is a brief allusion to the uh, to the to the whole Odysseus plot to uh, to take over the town. There was in the cycle of epic poems. It hasn't survived. We have some summaries of this stuff. There's a poem called the Iliopersis, the Sack of Troy. And there are a, a, some later works survive, which are pretty boring. Quintus of Smyrna and Tripidorus, and even a Byzantine writer, Ioannis uh, Etzes. And they give us some of these details about from the epic tradition, but really um, none of none of the other versions we have in mythographers or in later poets has anything like the, the majesty, the depth, the subtlety of, uh, of Virgil. There are irrelevant details constantly put in, ridiculous lists of names. It's as if they're imitating the style of epic poetry, but um, they, they can't, they, they, they don't know what the substance is. And so the, the Vir, Virgil's book, book two of the Aeneid is rightly regarded as one of his masterpieces, along with book four, book six, these are felt to be um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Virgil at his greatest. And book two is interesting because unlike book three, which is quite nice, but it tells a series of episodes that go on for year after year, you know, all, you know, all over the Mediterranean world, book two basically gives you the incidents of a day. It's it's like a Greek tragedy. It's a, you know it's of it's from the the afternoon of one day to the uh, uh, to the to uh, the early morning of the next. So it it is a very condensed and uh, concentrated and uh, coherent narrative. Well, I'm going to ask you to do something difficult here, Doctor Fleming, and give us an overview of that overview. Okay. Well, I'll give you the uh, what I like. Head for it, but I used to have this thing which I call a traveler's guide to the history of Rome. In house, I called it the bonehead history of Rome, <laughs> uh, because I not not so much uh, to the bonehead readers, but the bonehead writer, namely me. Okay, uh, we we've we've been through book one. The we know that you know Aeneas is landed at Carthage, and the Queen asks him. It's getting a little bit late. They've had their dinner. They've been drinking. She's clearly smitten with this great hero, and she says, uh, "Please tell us the story of your adventures." So he's a little reluctant, but he begins. Greeks and Trojans uh, have exhausted each other, killing each other now for ten years. The Greeks finally decide on a plan that. Uh, True to the character of the Greek as portrayed in Virgil, although he was a great admirer of the Greeks, but this is a patriotic epic, so it's a little bit like Shakespeare uh, trying to be fair to the French. He, they, the Greeks decide on a plan that involves trickery, fraud, and what's worse, perjury. That is, perjury is not just telling a lie, and it's telling a lie under oath. And for religious people, as the Romans were, or as Christians were once upon a time, Telling a lie under oath or is uh, an offense against the gods. By the way, you know, a, cu a couple of years ago, 
still this character running around. I forget what he's called, O'Keefe. And he runs around lying to people in order to get them to say uh, bad things about what they're doing off the record. And some of it involved uh, posing an underage girl as a teenage prostitute and and, and all sorts of uh, distinguished, younger, conservative Catholic intellectuals were putting this to the skies. And I said, well, you know, he is a liar. He's a, he's a, he's a, he lies over and over and over and has involved other people in his lies. Now, the fact that good things may come out of this, I mean, Paul asks, what, is, it, is it right we should do bad that, that good may come of it? I mean, Christians are supposed to know the answer to that one. And apparently, uh, younger Catholics no longer know the answer. And so their trickery involves building this famous gigantic horse, the Trojan horse. And they put a select, a select group of their best warriors inside, and they leave it on Trojan soil, uh, apparently as a votive offering to the goddess, to presumably Minerva, that is Athena, and they sail away. So it would seem for Greece. The Trojans are uh, divided as to what to do. Some welcome it as a gift for Minerva, which they can use and they can gain a credit with this very powerful goddess who has been conspicuously pro-Greek. Others, led by the priest Laocoon, initially are skeptical. And they, as he says, I've, I fear the Greeks even when they bear gifts. Timio dananos et danaos et dona ferentes, which of course becomes a proverbial expression even in English. And you don't accept Christmas presents from your Orthodox friends. The... Uh, <laughs> May, just just a brief uh, diversion here, Dr. Fleming. Does it does it sound any more interesting in the Greek? Uh, beware of of. of uh, I am afraid of the the Greeks, uh, even when they bear, bear gifts. Um, not especially. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, obviously, when it was written, it wasn't proverbial, and so you right. know, with with the ten thousand three telling. You know, sometimes I find that with a. Uh, uh, classic taglines and scriptural quotations, uh, we handle them so often that they lose all their shine and luster. But if you were to actually come across it in, in, the, in situ, in, in the passage where it originally occurs, often uh, you say, oh, oh, it means something rather different from what I always thought it meant. And, and there are, you know, there are a lot of proverbs, including you can, what I was child i couldn't understand you can have your cake and eat it too well no you can't <laughs> you know and uh, what do you mean have your cake well the point is you can you can't be eating your cake and at the same time remaining in possession of it and uh you all, all of these proverbial phrases you have to stop up and uh and think about them for a moment uh, for them to retain some of their uh, original point so they're skeptical, uh, but um, skepticism uh, evaporates when a Greek POW is brought in and he tells his story. And this is a character known to us from, from other uh, sources. He does different things. His name is uh, Sinon. And uh, Sinon, of course, probably comes from a Greek verb meaning to destroy or sack Although it's interesting, there's a similar verb, which also means to fawn upon. Mm. Now, Sinon claims to have escaped the enmity of Ulysses. Ulysses hates him because he's a, a relative of Palamedes, who is just as clever as 
uh, as Ulysses, so it's envy. And so after, after putting up with a whole lot from Ulysses and his flunkies, like the prophet Calchas, who is uh, plotted with him, they've decided that they need a sacrificial victim in order to win a war and win the war. And guess who it happens to be? It's Sinon. So they lock him up and they're going to kill him, but he escapes. So he hates the Greeks. He says he wants to join the Trojan cause. He will do uh, anything to help them. He claims they left the horse as an offering to Minerva because they had lost her favor when they you know, attacked in the Palladium and they stole these sacred images. And so she's, she's angry with them. But if the Trojans bring the horse into their city, uh, the horse will uh, protect them, help them with Minerva and serve as uh, a deterrent to their enemies. To ensure that he will be believed, Sinon swears a solemn oath. And this is very uh, important because this passage and through later passages, Odysseus is called a trickster. Um, Diomedes here is uncharacteristically called impious. Now, that is uh, faithless, or, uh, or it might imply just godless, but uh, but. Roman piety, as I've said on other broadcasts, Roman piety is fidelity to friends and family as and to the gods, but the, the gods aren't, don't necessarily take first place. Now, it's interesting because the Homeric Diomedes is a very noble and honorable character. So here, nobody's nobody's getting let off the hook. They're all these are all Greeks, uh, and they are going to take Troy by trickery, cunning, deceit. It's sort of like uh, uh, Michel de Montaigne trail of how, how the Spanish took South America. They just happened to be lucky to possess guns, like somebody just didn't and gave these weapons to them and because they're so much more dishonest than these poor, nice Indians. And uh, so the Greeks are portrayed somewhat in that, uh, in that light. Uh, where uh, which which which, which if he's lying, then that makes him the worst of human beings. So he wins them over, uh, but then they see another another sign, a portent, and again they're they're constantly being misled. Sinon is a is a is a false sign given by man, but now they see a false sign given by the gods. The skeptical uh, his sons are performing a sacrifice on the shore. And Virgil describes, and we'll, we'll talk about this scene in detail, a, a pair of deadly serpents. You know, while they, they, they're obviously like pythons, they swim ashore and kill Laocoon and his sons. And this proves that uh, Laocoon is impious in challenging the validity of the dog. And Priam's prophetic daughter, Cassandra, comes in and also predicts that, that ruin will come to Trojans from taking this horse in. Uh, she is, as usual, uh, condemned not to be believed. Do do people even still refer to so and so as a Cassandra? For them? No, I'm afraid that's beyond. They always tell the truth, that, but no. that, that's beyond the reach of my generation, <laughs> Doctor Fleming. Unfortunately, I, 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 while we are paused on the incompetence of my generation, I, I, can I ask? Do you um, do you like the sculpture group of Laocoon and his sons? I think it's at the Vatican. This is uh, this is something which uh, we 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 could talk about later. I talk about now. It is clearly in, uh, at least uh, Lessing 
and other later writers. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous book, Auerbach, on Mimesis, who talks a lot about this. The, the, it is a, it's an excellent sort of Alexandrian-style uh, sculpture, very dramatic, very, very sort of Baroque in its, in its high level of, of tension and drama. It is, uh, it's, the story uh, is clearly uh, Virgil and the sculptor are trying to do the same thing, which is to, is to create uh, a sympathy and, a, uh, and sorrow for the fate of, uh, on the one hand, Laocoon, on one of his sons, and uh, in, in both in the, both in, both in stone and uh or bronze and in uh and in in poetry it is a, it is, I, I my own preference in ancient sculpture and in modern sculpture as well is is for uh classical restraint but there is no denying the power of this of this great work even though it, it may be a, a copy uh, of a of an earlier work it's still it, it is a masterpiece as is virgil's own narrative which we'll talk a little bit about later so when night, night falls, Greeks issue out of port, let in their friends, uh, and they sack and burn the city, uh, according to plan. Aeneas is asleep. It's a vision of the dead Trojan hero, Hector, who had spent so many years defending the city, and Hector tells him to flee. If Troy could be saved by mere heroism, Hector would have done it, because he is the greatest of the Trojan heroes. Uh, it is interesting that Aeneas is a major tro a hero on the Trojan side, but he is he exists usually to be almost killed by one of the Greeks. In other words, he not only could never stand up to Achilles, but he couldn't stand up to Diomedes or Ajax or probably Odysseus. In other words, he is definitely in the Iliad is is viewed as an honorable and great warrior, but no match for the best of the Greeks. Whereas in the for the Trojans, he will be all uh, that they they have. One thing um, which um, we haven't talked about much, and uh, both either in book one or book two, but you know there there, there was a, a pre-Virgilian tradition. That, that this prince Aeneas had left Troy after the sack of Troy and founded uh, colonies either in Thrace, which is really just across, across the water from, from Troy and uh, on the very northeast Greek mainland, or in parts of Italy or Sicily or, or wherever. And there was also a family of priests in I think the town is Skepsis in the in the land the Troad the land around Troy, and uh, they claim to be Aeneadae that is uh, descendants of Aeneas. So in the in the archaic period that is the sixth century BC, and there there the uh, descendants of Aeneas uh, kept up a or people who said they were kept up various legends about uh, what he had done. And we know from, uh, from rather early Etruscan and Latin vases and, and paintings, we know that the story of Aeneas' arrival in Italy was something which uh, every, you know, everybody knew. It was, it was Aeneas 
Virgil didn't make Aeneas the uh, the Roman hero. He was already that when Virgil came over and remodeled him as a kind of ancient uh, Augustus. So, so the the the, the city is being taken. Tro, uh, Hector warns uh, Aeneas. And that the future of the the Trojan race now depends on him, who is the, by no means uh, as great a warrior as uh, Hector was. It's going to obviously uh, what he, his task, his very difficult task, is going to require other virtues. Rushing into the streets, he, he goes to find and rescue his father, and but he's told by the Trojans he meets that all is lost. In the dark, he's able to kill many Greek warriors, especially after he's killed a couple and he takes on their cloaks and some of their weapons so that they think he's uh, one more Greek, and then he, then he kills them. Well, turn, sees, turn about, turnabout's fair play, I suppose, Dr. Levin. Yes, well, exactly. He, uh, it's a horrifying night. I mean, this is, this is a very intense narrative. I can't think of anything in Greek and Roman literature that is uh, comparable. See. Virginal daughter. In fact, he's in company with her fiance, who's come to Troy to marry her, and they see her being dragged off as a slave. Uh, and remember, she becomes uh, Agamemnon's concubine. Uh, his companions are in the act of rescuing her, but uh, they are, are all killed. He gets to Priam's house, and everything there is a nightmare of destruction. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that. Uh, Pyrrhus, or Neoptolemus, Pyrrhus just means redhead. It's a nickname. The son of Achilles uh, is with, is, uh, with his comrades is rampaging, destroying, and murdering everything. And as the walls collapse in flame, Hecuba and her daughters are comforting Priam. And they see, uh, all together, they see the, his, the young son of Hecuba and Priam, Polites, cut down by uh, the warrior Neoptolemus. I mean, he's just a kid. And Neoptolemus, after being reproached by uh, Priam as not worthy of his father, he then murders Priam, dragging him through the gore of his own child. A particularly Virgilian touch, I think, is that the death of Priam reminds him belatedly uh, that he, he has a father too. And that, that is Anchises, and he really should be on his way to rescue his aged father, as well as his wife, Creusa, and his young son, Ascanius. As, as an aside here, Dr. Fleming, this scene is so powerful that it, it, we see it encapsulated within Hamlet as its own, you could say, scene-lit. Yeah, yes, um, indeed. So... Aeneas rescues father, son, and wife. As he makes his way out of the city, Creusa somehow gets lost. Again, this, this, this is one of the qualities that this narrative has. It's all like in a nightmare. The other day, I was, it was one of those late, early morning dreams, and, uh, and I was dreaming that all of a sudden I had – I was reminded I had agreed that I would do Coco in a, semi, in a college performance of the Mikado. And I'm not even sure I remember all the songs perfectly and the dialogue. How am I going to do this? It's only an hour away. I can't find my clothes. 
clothes. It takes forever to somebody is occupying the shower in this dormitory in the woods I'm living in. And it gets worse and worse. So finally, I rush off with my shirt hanging out and I'm going to the theater. It turns out it's in Chapel Hill. And, and, and I realize I have no jacket on. So I've got to go and get a jacket. Now, why I need a jacket? Because I don't know, because I'm going to get into costume as the Lord High Executioner. And uh, and then we're walking across some logo. It's supposed to represent the university. It's all made with flowers and the flowers are entangling my feet. I can't make any forward progress. Well, you know, this is this is called a nightmare, although thank goodness I never did have to get on stage. That would have been worse than a nightmare. But um, so th- th- we have the same feeling here. Aeneas rushing with his family through the burning Troy and with all this violence and mayhem going on. And then, where's Creusa? Where's Creusa? I can't find her. And he rushes back, of course, to look for her. And her ghost appears to warn him that she's already dead. In other words, she's been killed by a Greek to warn him against giving way to his grief. He has responsibility. Now, this is um, extremely important. There's several incidents in this uh, where uh, in this story where uh, Aeneas is tempted to give way to grief, anger or despair and uh, and is reminded that he has a destiny. And so this is our first inkling uh, that he has such a debt. Hector says he's got to give up any idea of defending the city, although he, he goes on and tries to that he has another destiny. His mother, and we'll talk about that scene in a little bit, his mother tells him uh, he's misunderstood everything. This is not the doing of Helen. And now his own wife, Creusa, tells him that she's got a bright future. The salvation of the Trojans depends on him. He will have a marriage to a princess in a new kingdom and live more or less happily ever after. It's sort of like after after Job's trial, he then gets a new family. I've, I've often wondered what kind of man would be content with having a new set of children and, and wouldn't somehow you know, sometimes wish, you know, I, I used to have kids and now they're all dead. It doesn't really make up having more kids. Mm. So as he mm. makes as he makes his way out of the city, he falls in with a large party of fleeing Trojans and they head toward the mountains where there's, of course, they think they'll find security. Eventually, they will have to flee across the ocean. End, well, end of last summary. Well, and, and that's, a, I, I think, a great summary, Dr. Yeah. Lamine. It, it obviously leaves us uh, with this, this scene of destruction, uh, complete and, and absolute destruction. And there is a little bit of hope. And we close with this little bit of hope. But at the moment, it seems, humanly speaking, all's lost. Yeah. Yeah. Without, without question. Um, now it's a good story, you know, obviously. And, um, but I think now maybe we should look at, I think we have enough time. We should look at a few little scenes, uh, that show off some of what Virgil's doing. We can't go over 800, uh, lines of masterful Latin poetry with a fine-tooth comb, uh, we'd be here for hours, and no one would be willing to sit through our show. But uh, I'd like to look at just four scenes, just very briefly. The, uh, the, the opening, and especially some attention to the episode with Laocoon, which we've talked about a little bit already, the apparition of Hector, 
the death of Priam, and Aeneas' confrontation uh, with Helen, uh, who doesn't get to say anything. One of the things that readers, when they're rereading Aeneas for the first time, should bear in mind is that for Virgil, it's not so much the action that's driving things, that's driving the narrative, as it is the characters. It is the it is the it is the sort of person that Aeneas is, or his father, or Dido, or later on Turnus. It is character that drives the story more than uh, simply event. Uh, you have to have a certain amount of killing and counter killing and all of the usual uh, uh, paraphernalia of epic poetry. But really, uh, for Virgil. Focusing on the 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 kinds of people and that are acting in the drama and and what they're experiencing and how it shapes them. When we first met Aeneas in the storm in book one, he's demoralized and suicidal, and we talked a little bit about that. And uh, and and so what books two and three can be interpreted. To, to be doing partly is to explain how does a man who's the son of a goddess, a prince, a happy man, and uh, ha- had a wife, child, everything was going great for him, how does he become this uh, melancholic, suicidal personality? And uh, clearly, books to it us. Now, in this first scene, I wanted to talk about this, uh, the opening and the scene with uh, Laocoon. Aeneas re- only reluctantly uh, embarks on telling the story. He's afraid that he's going to make uh, his audience tired. It's late at night. They've, they've gone, the Trojans in particular have gone through a lot. Uh, there's also a question of modesty. He's, he's, uh, he's the hero of the, of the story. He does say uh, in certain terms when he says, well, I, these are very uh, great events. He says, forum pars magna fui, of which I was a great part. And that's not bragging. I mean, he's the center of the action. So, of course, it's perfectly uh, right to say. It's, it's interesting how uh, a later writer, that is, say, an Elizabethan or a romantic or somebody today, would use big language. Virgil, pars magna fui, just the tiniest, most ordinary Latin words, a a great part of which was I. Um, The Laocoon story, which you asked about uh, earlier, it's in, we have references to the priest, and sometimes he's a priest of Poseidon, sometimes a priest of Apollo. Um, So he figures in uh, in these earlier versions, but the story, as Virgil tells it, uh, of his of his death is, uh, we don't have uh, much of a parallel for that. Let me read just a little bit of it in English. Which translation are you using, Dr. Fleming? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use, uh, if, you, if, you, if you, this is one, uh, I'm just going to use the Loeb translation, uh, slightly altered by me. Okay. Okay. Another important uh, more dire and more frightful is thrust upon us and confounds our unforeseeing souls. That is, uh, the, uh, un- is the, 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 ro- the Trojans are incapable of understanding what's coming to them. Laocoon, priest of Neptune, 
was slaying a great bull at the usual altars, and lo, from Tenedos, the island, over the peaceful depths, I shudder to tell the tale, a pair of serpents with endless coils are breasting the sea and side by side making for the shore. Their bosoms rise amid the surge and their crests blood red overtop the waves. The rest of them skims the main behind, that is the water, and their huge backs curve in many a fold. We hear the sound sent from foaming seas. And of course they come on hissing, unswerving in, uh, toward Laocoon and and first each servant enfolds in its embrace the youthful bodies of his two sons, and with its fangs feeds the helpless limb. So poor Laocoon has to witness, just as Priam will witness the death of his son by somebody who is described as a snake, namely Neoptolemus, so here uh, Laocoon has to witness the death of his two sons before the snake's will uh, kill him. It's, uh, it creates, by, by portraying these innocent victims, especially the, the children, it creates great pathos. Uh, and he, he is pious, he's pious, faithful, both to the gods and to his country and to his children especially, and Laocoon dies protecting what is dear to him. In their blindness, the Trojans blame the old priest and and Peter is thinking it has to be thinking how little we know of our own reality how little we understand and that we we find our that the that the trojans are a lot like job's comforters in other words they they blame the victim so uh, Laocoon is getting what he what he deserved for doubting the trojan horse in the same way that Job is getting what he deserved. They don't know what he did, but you don't suffer in this life unless you've done something. And uh, that's the kind of Sunday school morality that has given Christianity a bad name. Okay, any uh, any any comments on, on the scene, Stephen, that you'd like to make? No, I'm enjoying your commentary, Dr. Fleming. Okay, well, I'm glad somebody here. All right. <laughs> now, Hector. This is lines 268 following, uh, and, and it's set up very beautifully in the way that Greek and Latin poetry does. Tempus erat quo prima quies mortalibus aigris incipit, et dono di vum gratissima serpit. It was the hour when for weary mortals their first rest begins, and by grace of the gods, as by divine favor, it's, it's, the rest steals over them most sweet. So this is this is and it is a, it is the beautiful calm quiet time of the evening. It's when people first get into their deep sleep. But in slumbers, in slumbers, the, uh, he sees Hector, most sorrowful and shedding floods of tears, torn by the ear, and black with gory dust. His swollen feet pierced with thongs. Ah, what aspect was his? How changed from that Hector who returns after donning the spoils of Achilles or hurling on Greek ships the fires of Troy. With ragged beard, with hair matted with blood, bearing these many wounds he got around his native walls. I thought I wept myself, hailing him first and uttering words of grief. O light of the Trojans, what long delay has held thee? 
Now, this is this is quite interesting. Um, uh, now, if Aeneas were awake, of course, he would know Hector's long dead. But uh, uh, he's after all, he's appearing. He wonders why. Why have you taken so long? Where have you been all this time? You're supposed to be our protector, and instead of being handsome and heroic, he's bloodied and filthy, and he's got holes in his feet because Achilles had put uh, thongs through to drag him around at the back of his chariot. And if we if we needed a portent of the fate of Troy of its foul destruction by the by the Greeks. Here we have it in the ghost of Hector. Now, a lesser poet would have betrayed, portrayed Aeneas as being rationally coherent, you know, either, you know, in other words, oh, Hector, you're dead. What are you doing? Why are you coming to me? But no, it has, it has the logic of dreams. He's, he assumes that Hector has been off gathering allies or for some good purpose, and now he's returning, but he's bewildered that he looks so filthy. Well, poor Hector reveals the sad truth that the city is being taken. It is beyond rescue. And he says, uh, uh, and I, I noted this earlier, that um, if courage could have saved Troy, Hector was the man of courage would have done so. But now the implication is, and more than implication, that a different kind of leader is going to be needed. And Aeneas is specifically instructed, A, to flee, not to fight, to flee. So he's going to spend uh, uh, the heroic next several years not, not, in, uh, not in aggressive warfare or defensive warfare. He's going to spend it as, as a fugitive. And uh, at uh, the, the very first line of the Aeneid uh, warn us of this. In fact, let me find it. He says, uh, yes, uh, Italiam fato profugus uh, Laviniaque. He came as a fugitive, as an exile to the Lavinian shore. So Aeneas is going to be defined as the fugitive and and Hector says that it must be so, and that his job is to bring the Trojan gods, the household gods, the Penates, to uh, all uh, to settle in a new home. And of course, there's no point in telling him where, because Aeneas would have no idea where Italy is. So we were the we're parting company with the old heroic world of the Iliad, and different virtues, not just to be able. Not just the ability to uh, swing a sword or to stand up in battle or to uh, uh, rant threats against your enemy, but new uh, new qualities of statesmanship, of self-denial, uh, the willingness actually to appear a coward by fleeing, and religious dedication to the household gods of the Trojans. And it's quite – in just a few, you know, 20, 30 lines – we learn an enormous amount about about Aeneas's mission without it actually being stated. So shall we go on to uh, the next scene, which is uh, basically lines 438 following uh, the scene at Priam's palace. This is the, the this nightmare rises to uh, very bizarre uh, extremes, uh, to heights. The Trojans are fighting with the last ounce of their strength. In other words, they're not, not, they're not pathetic losers. 
soldiers, they're, they're killing a great deal, a great many of the, uh, of the Greeks. They're, they're, the, the Greeks are scaling, got the house on fire and they're scaling the walls, but the Trojans on top are tearing up hunks of masonry and blocks and everything and throwing it down on them as, they, as the Greeks come up. He sees Andromache, the wife of Hector, and who is, of course, maybe the most uh, moving character in the Iliad because of her love for her husband and for her children. By the way, we're, we're told by social historians that the ancient, ancient peoples did not love their wives and children. It's very funny. what the, <laughs> They've never read Homer, obviously, or Greek tragedy, and they would, or they would know better. So uh, she's, she's leading her sons is, in fact, a verb. She's sort of dragging him. I think it's she's trahebat, and um, dragging little Astyanax. Astyanax means the lord of the city. Uh, now, readers of uh, Euripides and uh, people with a knowledge of Greek tragedy will know, know that both Astyanax and Andromache are doomed. He is going to be declared as a human sacrifice along with his sister Polyxena. And in fact, at one point, he's thrown over the walls of Troy because if he grows up, then he will have to take blood revenge on the people who destroyed his family and his city. Andromache, the, the beautiful wife of Hector, is will be forced to become mistress to Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, who had killed Hector, and the, and he was now about to be the slayer of the aged Priam, and uh, and of course, uh, and his son, Andromache, leading the son by the hand, prefigures the famous image of Aeneas, uh, you know, with his father on his shoulder and leading his son by the hand, but in Andromache's case. She belongs to the, the doomed old world of Troy, and her efforts to save her ch child are in vain. Uh, then, of course, the scene, the, the, the scene becomes uh, un unbearably uh, moving and violent. It, announced by an operatic crash of falling masonry and fire, Neoptolemus appears as if he's part of a volcano. It's almost a, a, a diabolical. Diabolical character here, a raging force of nature, killing everything regardless of age. Uh, he he, he uh, slaughters uh, uh, even the child, uh, Polites, the, the young child of Priam, and Priam um, abuses him and, uh, and says, you know, your, 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 your father listened to me. When I when I tried to get my own son back, but you you know you're a monster. Let me read a little bit of it in English. Just before the entrance court and at the very portal, a Pyrrhus, a proud proudly gleaming in the sheen of brazen arms, even as when into the light comes a snake. Notice again we have the snake fed on poisonous herbs, whom cold winter kept swollen underground. Now his slough cast off. Fresh and glistening in youth, with uplifted breath, he rolls his slippery length toward the sun and darted his uh, three-fourth tongue. So he, with, with several, uh, slaughtering everything, knocking gates down, uh, killing the uh, killing the, uh, the 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 young boy. Priam uh, Priam tells them off. 
only and uh, and Neoptolemus gloating as to what he's going to do is just you know you can go tell my father whether I'm a proper son of his or not and he dragging Priam through the blood of his slaughtered child uh, he kills it. The uh, as we view uh, the the horror of this slaughter, I think it's important to remember one of the most famous scenes and famous lines in the Aeneid. It's in in book one when Aeneas sees the, the uh, sculptures, you know, of uh, of the Trojan War, and he says, "Here's Priam. Here's the reward for virtue, etc." And he makes his famous remark, sunt lacrimae re rum mentem mortalia tangun. There are tears, there are tears for what happens and, and thoughts of death touch the mind. And it is precisely, he's not talking in the abstract as one might think in book one. He's looking forward to the, he has seen Hector murdered mercilessly by this demonic force. And this, this has formed part of uh, his experience. Okay, Stephen, are you ready for episode four? I am. And I think this will be our, our last episode for today's episode, I think, Dr. Fleming. That is absolutely right. Aeneas comes finally as he's as he's making his way. He should be going out to find his father. He sees Helen cowering in the shrine of Vesta. Now Vesta is interesting because uh, it's true there's three counterpartia, but uh, Vesta is far more important in the Roman world. She is the sort of the goddess who protects the Roman Commonwealth as well as each Roman family. So she's very important. Um, he refers to her as the communis erinus a vengeance feared that is shared by or common to both Troy and her own fatherland, that is uh, Greece. He's outraged at the thought that after all the ruin she has done, she's caused everything, all these people are going to be dead or enslaved, and that she can return home to normal life uh, as if nothing has happened. Quote, is she to see husband at home, parents and children attended by a throng of Trojan maidens, uh, and, and, and young Phrygian boys as her servants? Is Priam to have fallen by the sword? Troy to be burnt in flames? The, 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 the Trojan shores to be soaked in blood? And all for her and she gets off scot-free? Though there's... An, he will nonetheless earn universal gratitude if he takes her out. And um, it certainly would have been something that Helen... Uh, had reasonably to fear from the Greeks as well as the Trojans. But at just as he about to kill her, his mother appears, Venus, the goddess, in all her divine beauty and glory, not as she would normally appear to Aeneas as a beautiful woman or in one form or another, but as she appears to the gods. So uh, Venus, this is probably the first and only time in his experience of his mother that he sees her as she is. You know, uh, uh, the great gods of the universe she explains to him. It's about line three thirty-five, five thirty-five. Excuse me, six thirty-five. She explains it is not Helen's fault that all this happened, and this is an old Greek interpretation. You know, Helen was simply used, and in one version that appears, we we see it in the Odyssey. We see it in the poem of Stesichorus. 
uh, she, she, it wasn't even the real Helen who was at Troy. But Virgil doesn't go that far. It's not her fault, but the work of the gods. And what uh, he, like everyone else, has had his vision covered by mist. And now Venus, his mother, takes away the mist. And he sees, um, in fact, that the various gods are themselves destroying the city. Neptune shakes the walls and foundations that his mighty trident hath upheaved. Here Juno, fiercest of all, is foremost to hold the gates, and girt with steel furiously calls from the ships her allied band. See Pallas Athena, gleaming with storm cloud in the grim gorgon, and the sire himself, Jupiter, gives the Greeks courage and strength. He himself stirs up the gods. Uh, dread shapes come to view, mighty powers, divine, warring against Troy. Easy. So, you know, in other words, to to uh, to the normal person, all you see is that the Greeks are winning and that they're destroying Troy to. Uh, to uh, however, to Aeneas, with the, the clear vision now given to him, the, the vision that only the gods have, he realizes that they that the human scale is nothing compared to the divine scale he has an int- he has as a as a, a revelation of how the universe actually works and it's not a very nice revelation of these host- it reminds me a little bit of when a chief of a hostile tribe after he'd been defeated and they take him to New York and Philadelphia and Washington and they say do you really think with 300 starving warriors you could fight against an industrial society this is what they did with Black Hawk when he was defeated in the Black Hawk War here in the, the Midwest and of course the, the poor chief would return totally demoralized and, and of course nobody would believe him because they couldn't believe that there were millions of people uh, of white people on the on the other side of the Mississippi um, so as in the case of Laocoon, mortal vision is not enough for, uh, for us. We cannot use our mere senses to understand reality. Reality eludes us. It's something beyond our understanding. We need supernatural insight if we're going to understand the role of the gods in the universe. And although I think most critics would say, well, virtually, doesn't really believe this. Well, of course, he doesn't believe the, the sort of fairy tale mythological version, but we know he's a deep, deeply religious and deeply spiritual writer with, in, with uh, interests in uh, the Pythagorean tradition. And we know that for Virgil, reality is not what you see and touch. Reality lies beyond. And, and, and this is one of the purposes of this poem. So this is the experience that happened to really shape the mind of Aeneas. It's the violent destruction of everything he ever loved and expected to love. His life, as far as he is concerned, is over. There is nothing else to live for. And when he cries up, would that I had died fighting at Troy at the, in the storm scene at the beginning of book one, uh, we now understand why he would say that. Book three, which we'll do uh, with our next Aeneas, Aeneid episode, will complete the transformation of Aeneas 
by through his wanderings and travelings and sorrows, how he becomes the true father of the Trojan people and hence the progenitor of the Roman race. But that we leave for another week. Well, as always, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Fleming. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.